Good morning. Today we will be continuing our passages in John, uh, moving into the latter half of chapter 11 of the book of John. Thank you, Josh, for the wonderful selection of music and the reminder that it is in Christ that we put our faith and hope. And so today, I want to begin by asking you guys that if a question, more like a survey real quick, of all the desserts that there are that you've ever had, what would you recommend would be the one dessert that a person should try at least once in their life? Tiramisu. Tiramisu. Tacos. Tacos. <laughs> Bill, is that a dessert? All right, he's going to take it. The Choco Tacos, right? Tiramisu, Choco Tacos. Anything else? Cheesecake. Absolutely, right? What, one more. Ice cream pie, all right. Tiramisu, choco tacos, or regular. <laughs> Cheesecake and ice cream pie. All right. So, it, you know, we, we oftentimes try things out and we, we come to enjoy them or not enjoy them. Either way, we want to make a purpose to let other people know that thing that we have enjoyed, right? And also to warn them about the things that we haven't enjoyed. And it's always a part of our ambition or intention of doing that to share with them this so that they too can share in that pleasure or that warning, right? And so it's often discouraging when you share with somebody, oh, you got to try these choco tacos for dessert. And they look at you and are like, no way, why would I want to do that? Oh, come on, you have to try the choco tacos. And you try everything you can to convince them that they're good to eat, but yet they still don't even try it. Or maybe they do try it, and then they spit it out of their mouth, and they walk away. I'll never try that again. In fact, don't you ever recommend another dessert to me. <laughs> Horrible selection of desserts. That's just a small example of what we're getting into today. That's a small example of what John wanted to share with us when he wrote the record of his witness of Christ. The truth is, guys, there are people in your life that you have no doubt shared the gospel with, whether it was the perfect deliverance in words or the perfect or sometimes imperfect deliverance in your actions. Either way, there's been a moment where you've shared it with others. And the truth is there are people in your life today that are not following Christ, and you probably desire that they would. There are people in your life that are living in outright rejection and rebellion towards Christ. Now, I want you guys to take a moment to just either think about it or pull out your pen and paper, and I want you to write down or think about a name or several names of people that come to your heart. Let the Lord bring them to your heart, people that you want to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, through being able to talk with many of you in the, in the setting of care group, sitting across tables, I have come to understand that there are many people in this church that are hurting for other people. I have seen people's sorrows. I've seen your doubts. I've seen your worries. And I've also seen your persistence and your joy in sharing moments when you have shared the gospel with others. The truth is I have seen you, whether you've expressed it in doubt or confidence, remain true to your belief in the power of Christ. 
Today I want to encourage each of you guys, each of us as a church, by providing you with three things that I think might help you if you do them each day. If you set to task to do these three things each day. And as you do them, they will help you to fight against that temptation to just throw up the, throw in the towel. And, and you know, Lord, it's your sovereign, so I'm going to leave this to your sovereignty. And in doing so, the temptation to abrogate your responsibility kicks in. And so these three things, I believe, will help you fight against that temptation. Number one, first, live a life of persistent prayer for the lost. Knowing that divine timing through the sovereignty of Christ is a sure path to salvation. Jesus taught us in Luke 18 when he gave the parable of the widow that, that pestered the city judge, and she never let him alone until he would grant her request. She wanted justice to be served against her adversary. And so day after day, she continued to bug him, to nag him for this justice, and eventually he gave in. She just won't leave me alone. I'm going to give her what, what her heart desires. Now, you won't always get the type of answer you want. The Lord, our God, answers every one of your prayers. He does. It's just not always what you want to hear when you want to hear it. But he does answer them. Second, live a life of unceasing witness, sharing the light of Christ with the lost, not only in words, but also in your actions. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us to go out into the world and to spread the gospel. This is known as the Great Commission, and we are to do this without stopping. At all costs, we are to share the gospel. Third, live a life of unwavering trust in Christ, who is the key to salvation for the lost. This reflects a deep reliance on God and his faithfulness in accomplishing his plan. His plan of redemption in both your life and the life of the people that you love most, even in your neighbors and your coworkers and the people that you may not necessarily have an easy time loving in the first place. But rest assured that belief that comes to the lost based on God's divine plan comes according to his timing. And I know this to be true by scripture and also by personal experience. I'm going to share a couple of examples by way of um, being transparent and then also to encourage. There's been a few people in my life from the moment I was born until the moment that I got saved that it ministered to me. They expressed the love of Christ to me. Now, in that lost condition, I had no idea what they were doing. In fact, in many times, I saw it as weakness, the way that they expressed love to me. The first would be my great uncle, who would sit at the head of the table at every family gathering. They were small gatherings with my wife, or excuse me, my mom, my grandma, my sister, my great-grandmother, and, and him, Uncle Ed. And he would pray for us at the table, and then we would eat and go about our way. Despite his efforts, I would go on and continue to be a rebellious young man, to the point of leaving the home at 15, dropping out of high school, and joining the military. Then there was Brad. He was a, a team leader of mine. He would talk of Jesus often. Whether we were in training or if, or if we were in combat, he would constantly talk about the Lord and how he wanted the Lord to be primary in his life. Again, to me, this was foolish. It was just a weakness. 
Um, and so, the, but what happens is through his actions, he didn't just say it in words, but he expressed it in actions, I always knew that something was different with him. While I would compromise often, compromise my moral character, he never did. He stayed true to his convictions. In college, a professor had a friend of had us as a class get with a partner, and he wanted us to do an exercise where we would stare into the eyes of each other. And the person I had to stare into the eyes of, now this is an uncomfortable situation for a guy like me. The way that I grew up, military experiences, this was not easy for me to do, to stare into the eyes of another man and not say a word. But as I stared into this man's eyes, something crazy happened. Tears began to flow from his eyes. This big man, I mean, I had to look up to look into his eyes. He just began weeping. And I had no idea what was going on until the professor came over and that man shared with the professor that when he stared into my eyes, he could see nothing but pain. Heartbreaking. But at the time, nothing came from me. I was hard, I was bitter, and I didn't want what these people were trying to give me. They were trying to testify to me of Christ, and I continued to reject it, despite their efforts. They understood what it meant to be with the Lord, that to be with him is not only a beautiful ending, but it's a blessed beginning. They looked at me and my condition and cried for me. They prayed, experienced frustration at not witnessing the power of Christ's transformation in my life. All the work that they were doing to help me, to show me the way, yet I continued to say, no, don't want it. They did not condemn me or get angry with me, or at least they didn't express it. Um, what they really wanted was for me to experience the grace of God, the grace that they experienced. They could see the pain in my eyes, but I, like I said before, I didn't want it. I wanted something else. Thankfully, later on, Christ would lead me to salvation. He would show me the way. And I would call Brad, because the other guys, not everybody's either alive or contactable anymore. And I expressed to him what, what has gone on in my life. And over the phone, this special operations commander is crying and rejoicing with me on the phone because of my salvation. And at that moment, he let me know from the moment he met me in 2011, he and his entire family had been praying for my salvation. They never gave up. They knew this Christ. And they wanted me to know him. Live a life of persistent prayer. When the people closest to you continue to reject Christ, when you've seen the power, the glory, and the goodness of the Lord your God manifested in your own life, and you just can't wait to share him with others, live a life of persistent prayer for the lost, knowing that in his divine timing, through the sovereignty of Christ, a sure path of salvation exists. So the question is, how many times should you pray? How many times should you witness to a person? In witnessing to others, you're making an effort to show that Jesus Christ is both human and divine. He is the pre-existent incarnate word, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of the Father, and the Great I Am. 
you are showing that Jesus Christ is their Savior and their hope. He is the way to the forgiveness that they need desperately to be reconciled to the Father. So how often should you cease to witness? Never. Never. Never stop witnessing. Yeah, but I can't talk that much. I'm introvert. I don't want to talk. Yeah, but I don't have the right words to say. We are to love not only in word and tongue, but in spirit and truth. We are to love in, the, in deed and truth, in the actions that we have, the opportunities we have to display the love of Christ to others. Now, as John worked to show evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah, what greater sign than raising a man from the dead? That's the last sign that we see. Last week we read about it. Lazarus is raised from the grave. This is a foreshadow, a reflection of all people that would, be, that would believe in Christ and be raised from the dead. There's many of you sitting in this room today who were once dead and now you are alive. That new birth that we heard about. And each time you come into this church, guess what? Each time you go into any church, you go to a care group, you join fellowship with other like-minded people, they do begin to take those filthy rags off of you to expose the new person that you are. As you look around this church today, you are seeing great examples of men and women and children who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and have been made alive in him. He did this so that his glory would, re would be revealed in us and his name would go out to the nations by us and that people would believe in the Son of God through his Holy Spirit. So raising Lazarus from the dead is the culmination of the miracles for John. The first chapter of John talks about who Christ is, the crucial moment. That's the crucial piece that we need. We need to first know who he is. He is the, he is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Not only that, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of the world. So that's the first half of the book, the miracles. We will soon, beginning next week, go into the next portion of John's gospel, which is the preparation. He spends the first half of the book going through years of Jesus' ministry, and the latter half he will spend going through the final week or weeks of Jesus' ministry ending with the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Christ will soon die himself, be buried, and then he will raise from the dead because Christ is the resurrection. We are now at the point where John stops writing the miracles. The next passage, 45 through 57, is the bridge. He's going to remind us one more time that everything that Christ did continuously created a division amongst the people. There are those who believed and those who didn't. So beginning at verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. 
he was dead and now he's not. The very same people that watched him being carried into the tomb and that stone rolled over it are now witnessing Lazarus coming out at the command of Jesus. Lazarus, come out. How could anybody not believe after this? Is that not what we think sometimes? How can anybody not believe? How can anybody believe what they are believing to be true? The evidence is so clear. How can you not believe? We see this in other areas of John as well. All throughout John, somebody believed and somebody else did not believe. No matter how big the miracle was or how small it was, according to our standards of miracle rating, that is, no matter how much compassionate grace he displayed, some would believe and some would not believe. Jesus was known all throughout the land. People came from everywhere to see him and to see what he was doing, to listen to his teachings. Everywhere. Everywhere he went, people heard and saw and ran to testify of what they were seeing and hearing. They would run home and tell their families. They would even run to the synagogues to tell the religious leaders. You guys got to see this. What do you mean you don't believe? This is, this is crazy. They'd run to their own cities and towns and villages, proclaiming the works of Jesus. Their zealousness was infectious, and it should be. Many who heard either believed or they didn't. This is the theme for John. Some were skeptical, and some wanted to see for themselves. So when the apostles started to be called, you would see it. Come and see. Come. See for yourself. Now, the people of the time were fortunate because Jesus didn't perform just one miracle. He performed many. He didn't teach just one lesson. He taught many lessons. He didn't rebuke one person or one time. He rebuked multiple times. John records that there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 25. Through all these works, a theme continues to run. Those who saw and believed would witness to others in the hopes that they too would come and see and believe. The gospel is very clear, though. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, someone believed, but what the gospels do not reveal is how many signs a person had to witness before they believed, how many stories they had to hear before they believed, or how many times they heard the testimonies of Jesus before they believed. So how many times did, did Jesus show compassion? Was it just once, church? Or was it many times? Many, many times Jesus showed compassion. The very disciples that even walked with Jesus, they got a front row seat to his teachings. They learned more from Jesus than anybody else at the time. They walked with him for quite some time, and even they came to an understanding of who Christ was at various times. Thomas had to put his hand in the side of Christ for his doubt to be relieved. One can easily infer that some who did believe had previous, previous experiences before they believed in Christ. 
Take the centurion, for example. Do you think that a centurion of the Roman military wouldn't have heard of Christ before he approached him? He's a Roman centurion. The Jews are afraid that if they don't put something together, these very people are going to do something about it. And yet he seeks Christ. He seeks Christ. He comes out to Christ. This tells me that there must have been some knowledge before. He had to have heard the stories. Somebody had to have testified. Somebody had to have witnessed to him. This stuff is going on in our land. There are many people believing. Uh, Otherwise, why would he seek this Christ for help? How many times do you have to love your neighbor? How many times do you have to share the gospel with somebody? How many times do you have to forgive another person? How many times? How much longer must you continuously exert yourself for the sake of another? How many times must you endure their constant rejection, their mockery, their judgment of you? How many times must you compromise? Never. You must share the gospel and be true to it. When you share your testimony, as Kurt talked about last week, and witness of Christ to others, you can rest assured that belief will occur. The only thing is we just don't know who that is and when that, ha- when that will happen. So we must be faithful in sharing our story of Christ in our life. It may not occur in that very moment or in that present time. You may not witness it yourself, but there is a plan of God's far greater than yours. I had a plan for my life. Anybody else here had a plan for your own life before? Yeah? How many of you guys are glad your plans didn't actually happen? I know I am. The plan I had, I wouldn't be here today. But his plan, thankfully, was far greater. I am always amazed when I walk into this building or any of the other buildings. Visitors, we, we're in a period of transition. But I'm always, you guys know, I'm always blown away that I get to sit in a room with you guys. <laughs> if you knew, some of you know parts, but if you only knew, <laughs> I get to be here. My kids get to be here. My wife gets to be here. All I can say is thank you. Those are my favorite two words out of the whole dictionary these days. Thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you. Live a life of unceasing witness. I am a product of Christ's grace in sending people into my life to witness to me. They never gave up. 34 years old, with a gun to my head. They never gave up. And here I am. Your labor, you are in the hand of God, and he is directing you to people in your life right now. 
He loves them just as much as he loves you. And you can only love them because he has loved you first. John says, believe. And if you do believe, keep believing. Keep on. Never give up the hope that is within you. Live a life of unceasing witness, sharing the light of Christ with the lost, not only in words, but also in your actions. Yet still, this is the frustration we have, despite all of your efforts, there are some, if not many, that will continue in opposition to God, because those who are called to eternal life are called in his timing, not in ours. I would love to witness to somebody and see them immediately look at me and say, I believe. What do I do now? I would be shocked. Would anybody else here be shocked if you said something to another person and said, I believe. What do I do? Let's be real. We would be surprised. It would throw us back for a minute. Why? We're so used to seeing people reject God. But you know what? There is somebody else in this world that's going to get to experience that blessing. <laughs> a lot of you guys get to experience it in me when people who spent their life with me can't even see it. You are experiencing the blessings of others every time another person comes in here. Every time a person walks to this table and realizes, I am no longer condemned, but I am forgiven. Believe, John says. Not in our timing. Whose call is it? We remembered. Whose call is it? All right. In fact, God, when God delays, it's often because he's got something else in store. We saw it with the boy, with the boy born blind. Well, who, who sinned, his father or his mother? Nobody. He was born this way so that my glory could be seen in him when I delivered him from this blindness. Oh, why is Mike continuously rejecting God? So that when I save him, my glory may be known through him. His timing. So I want you guys to put your frustrations aside and understand that there are those who believe and those who don't, and it is all according to God's plan. Rather than getting frustrated, but God understands when you do. I do. Do you understand when your brothers and sisters get frustrated? Absolutely. Rather than frustration and bitterness and pride, trust in Christ. Trust that his timing is far greater than yours. Because it is. Pour yourself out for this person in the corner of your closets. Love them with all that you have. Forgive them. Be compassionate to them as Christ has been compassionate to you. Do this in private and in public. When you pray for this person in the closets of your homes, do you then go and mock this person for their false beliefs? Or do you cry for them always? Do you show compassion in all manner of time, in private and in public? Jesus' timing is sure. There are those that seem gentle, 
Those that who reject him, they'll be gentle and considerate. They'll even consider your faith and be kind to you. One time we were walking up Manitou Springs, or not Manitou Springs, the incline, and there was a young man with his buddy, and he was speaking, and every word out of his mouth was an explicitive, except one in particular phrase. He would say, gosh dang it, intentionally. And I meant to speak to him on the way up, um, but I, I didn't. And as I was coming down, God always gives us opportunities. He was taking a break on the trail, and I came up to him. And as I approached him, I stopped him. I said, you know what, I want to I thank you. Out of all the things that you were saying on those stairs, you didn't use my Lord's name in vain. And he said, oh, I've got so many friends who are Christians, and I would never disrespect them. We will come across people who reject Christ and are kind and gentle. And then you will come across people who are not so kind and not so gentle. Now, it's easy to show compassion to the first, those who are kind and gentle and compassionate, but not so easy to show compassion to those who are, you know, flagrant about it, that are nasty about it. But when it comes to the hostile, we must pray for a trust that never wavers, knowing that Christ desires that we would witness to even the most unlikely people. And as if things couldn't get much worse here in the book of John, there are people who reject Christ and simply walk away. Then there are those who reject Christ and plot to do harm to both him and his people. The rest of this passage uh, drives home a point that is very crucial in what we are here to do today. And I think to our endurance in the faithfully caring for the lost. In this last section, we see that God has a plan that does not look like a plan we would produce. God's plan involves rejection, rebellion, and even violent hatred towards his very own son. This is God's plan. Let us not forget that. John now introduces God's plan to sacrifice his only begotten son and his power to fulfill that plan. Beginning in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, if we lived in the year 30, on or about, we, would, we might have concluded that Caiaphas was a powerful man and that this powerful man, this high priest, oversees the decisions of who gets to live and who gets to die. After all, he is the high priest, and many people are freaking out right now. They're freaking out in fear of what the Romans might do if Jesus continues the way that he is. The lead, the people in the Sanhedrin, they're crying out, what are we to do? 
What are we supposed to do? Caiaphas, being the strong leader that he was, rises and announces that he has a solution. He has a plan. Strong is sarcastic, by the way. His plan is to protect their temple and positions of authority, power, prestige, and fame by killing Jesus. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation. Now what we know about prophecy is this, that anything a man prophesies that does not come true, it is not of God. Now did Caiaphas' prophecy come true? Absolutely it did. We get the joy of hindsight, the blessing. Jesus did in fact die, one man, one God, for the nations, for the whole world, not just for the Jew, but also for the Greek, the Gentile, the one for the many. The people in the Sanhedrin look at each other in amazement. Man, this Caiaphas guy sure is wise. He knows exactly what to do, and this makes so much sense. If we just kill him, then he dies, his followers scatter, and the problem is solved. This isn't the first time they experienced, by the way. You can look in Acts chapter 5 for two more examples of people who rose up against the Roman powers. The temple will survive, and we will thrive. The Romans will be so thrilled at how we managed this problem. Mm. Whatever this Jesus is offering, we don't want it. Guys, that negative response that you guys experience is nothing new. People have responded this way to God for thousands of years. It's nothing new. So let us go to Scripture. Let us put our faith in Him. Let us read His Word and know how we are to respond. Time and time again throughout history, God did respond to these rejections, and he made a plan. So let us put our trust in him. It's no different for your friends, families, neighbors, and coworkers. It's no different for the Jew or the Muslim, the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, the Seventh-day Adventist, even those raised in homes of atheism, which is still a religion. Those who decide to abandon their false religions, including selfism, to follow Christ are rejected by their own families. They stand to lose everything, and they are not ready for that. These religious leaders weren't ready to lose it all, and people in this world are not ready to lose it all. So they're going to reject what you have to offer, because what we have to offer includes a rich man selling all that he has and giving it away to the poor. Are you tempted to look at these people? Are you tempted to look at them like they looked at Caiaphas and think they're in control? Do you consider their rejection as part of their plan? Or do you trust that like Caiaphas prophesying and condemning Jesus Christ to death, that the rejection of you sharing the gospel is actually God's plan so that his glory may be known? The plot to kill Jesus must have its day, for God sent his son to save the world through him, a debt that must be paid for the sins of man, and the debt, the cost, was death. Which one of you can die and come back? None. 
none of us can pay the penalty and live to tell about it. Jesus was sent into the world to die in man's place so that the penalty of sin, death, would be paid and that the relationship between man and God would be restored. Those who believe in Christ Jesus will no longer be slaves to death, but having been covered by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, death would pass over them, and they would be seen as righteous and holy. But first, Jesus must die, but not according to man's timing, his own. Beginning in verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Previously in John, we see that they already wanted to arrest him. And in fact, the guards, the centurions, refused to do so. This is not just a plot to arrest Jesus. This is the plot to kill him. Earlier, Jesus made the following statement regarding his life in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me with regards to his life. Because I lay it down of my own accord, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. What a statement to the disciples. Earlier, I told you that nobody could take my life. Now, Caiaphas announces that they're going to kill me. So instead, we're going to go to a town called Ephraim, where I will, he didn't say it, but he knew it, I will go and be prepared for that final day. Now after hearing that the Sanhedrin made plans to kill him, he did in fact go to Ephraim. Having prompted a great following, it is no surprise that everyone was waiting for him to arrive at the Passover. What this tells us is that at this point, the plot was no longer private. It was no longer a secret. The Pharisees were desperate. We need this Jesus. We can't seem to get a hold of him. Every time we try to get a hold of him or stone him to death, he just fades away and out of the crowd. So we need you guys. If you know where he is, tell us where he's at. And that's why they're sitting in the, in the temple and in Jerusalem saying, is he going to show up? If he shows up, they're going to kill him. Is he going to show up? But where he was, nobody knew. The only people that knew was him, his disciples, and probably a few others where he was staying. The absence of Jesus was not evidence of a sign of fear. His absence was a time of preparation for what was to come. So he goes, John says, Jesus is God, in pretty plain language. Here's the things that he did in his ministry that only God can do. No other man can do this but God. And now he's about to be prepared for death. Mary will soon pour an expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus and wipe them with her hair. He provides some final teachings and instructions for his disciples and prepare them for the day that was coming. He'd go before his Father in heaven and pray for them. 
that they would be upheld and strengthened by, by, by God himself. And then finally, he commands Judas to go and do what you have been born to do. This doesn't seem like a good plan, does it? When Peter heard the plan, what was his response? Nah, not on my watch. No one's taking you. I got this. The sons of thunder. I'll just cut his ear off. Let's go. It's time to fight. Don't threaten me with a good time. It's not a good plan, but it is. It's not a good plan. I agree. It's a perfect plan. It's a perfect plan that no man could come up with. Only God, the author and the finisher, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, only he could come up with a plan like this. Would you trust God in that moment? In the year 30, do you trust God today? Do you trust that God's plan for your friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers are better than your plans? When you've given all that you have and you are tempted to give up on a friend, your family, neighbors, coworkers, I encourage you to live a life of unwavering trust. Unwavering trust in Christ, who is the key to salvation for the lost. When you're longing for someone to come to know the Lord, you've seen what he's got. You've seen what he's done. You know what's going to go on. You know what the ending is, and all you want to do is let people know. When you find yourself screaming out in frustration, which is okay, by the way, God knows your heart. He wants to hear what you want to say. When you're crying in agony and losing hope for someone that you love, when all seems lost, I want you to remember Paul. Though there are many people like Paul, he is definitely one of a kind. He was the least likely to fall to his knees in submission to Christ. Sources say that he was born about 5 BC, which would have made him about 35 years old when Christ was hanging on that cross. He wasn't too young to know. And he wasn't too old to move about quickly. He witnessed Jesus teach, rebuke, flip tables, heal the sick, forgive the sins of the adulterous woman. When Jesus wrote in the sand, it's possible that he could have been one of the very Pharisees to toss the stone down and walk away. Just possible. And based on his lineage, there's always a chance that he could have been at the Sanhedrin that day. And if he wasn't there himself, He knew the people that were at the Sanhedrin when they plotted to kill Jesus. He knew very well that Christ died. He knew that he was buried, and he knew that he raised again. Yet he continued to reject Christ and his followers. (laughs) He'd kill them. And if he wasn't the one putting the blade to the throat, He was allowing it to happen. He killed them because the hatred in his heart, the definition of murder. You heard that it was said, but I say, murder is in the heart when you hate somebody. Christ appeared to him the least likely. He gave him a new name, 
And then he inspired him to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. This Paul, the one who rejected Christ, which refused to compromise his faith in Christ, even unto death, even at the threat of beheading, did not deny Christ. And they, they beheaded him. He was martyred in his faith. So that God's glory could be known. This Paul? Are you sure? Do you know what he's done to us? The author of Paul's salvation, the same author of my salvation and yours, is the same author of the salvation of others. He decides when and where his servants will be called out of the grave like Lazarus and given sight like the man born blind. It is all in God's timing and for his perfect eternal purpose. The encouragement today, church, never give up. Never give up the hope that you have. Love faithfully, because the Lord, God, the Lord our God never gave up. He loved faithfully even unto death. Take this cup from me. <laughs> Nevertheless, let your will be done. No love is greater than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He is long-suffering, patient, desiring that none should perish. Today, I want us to see the compassion of Christ displayed. I want to see an act of love that would lead to the salvation of the unlikely. If you don't know the Lord, or if you, not, or if you have not decided to fully submit to him, then my desire is that you will hear today that God is calling you. Whether you like it or not, you're sitting in here, you're watching, and I'm telling you, he is calling you. He has presented himself to the world and to you. I want you to experience his grace and forgiveness, the same as John, the same as all the others who believed, who witnessed what Christ did, to know a love so perfect and pure. Be the ones who never give up, no matter what you see others doing or how much they commit to rejecting Christ. Pray persistently for their souls. Unceasingly witness to them through your words and actions and maintain an unwavering trust that Jesus is sovereign over their salvation. It's just a short story, and then we'll, we'll close. At the age of 16, in the year 371, I, somebody shared this story with me this week, Augustine snuck away from his mother in Carthage. During the night, he sailed away to Rome, leaving her alone to her tears and prayers. How were these prayers answered? Not the way Monica, his mother, hoped at the time. Only later could she see that praying is the deepest path to joy. Augustine himself wrote, And what did she beg of you, my God? All those tears, if not that you would prevent me from sailing. Obviously, she doesn't want me to go, right? That's what she had to pray for. But you did not. 
You didn't do as she asked you. Instead, in the depth of your wisdom, you granted the wish that was closest to her heart. For she saw that you had granted her far more than she, could, than she, used, than she used to ask for in her tearful prayers. And here it is. You converted me to yourself so that I no longer placed any hope in this world, but stood firmly upon the rule of faith. And you turned her sadness into rejoicing, into joy far fuller than her dearest wish, far sweeter and more chaste than any she had hoped to find. If the worship team would come up. Church, I know that God can save. I believe that he can. My question is, do you believe that God can save? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the resurrection? The question is, do you believe? Let's get beyond Theology. The question is simple. Do you believe? When you think about that loved one, do you believe? We are going to do something that is good, I think. And God says, it is pleasing in the sight of God our, our Savior, who desires that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 3. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5.14. Is that your confidence? Are you confident in that? That when you pray, he hears you? That he will answer you? When your heart cries out for your loved ones, do you believe that he's listening? When you want so badly to walk in the light of Christ. Do you believe it? It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But the question is simple. Do you believe it? If, there, if this is your confidence, and even if it's not, if you know somebody that you would desire to come to a saving faith in Christ, I just want you to raise your hand. We're going to do it. I want you to raise your hand. If you know somebody that's not following the Lord, and you just want them to know him, it's frustrating, it's hard, but you just want him to know. You want him to reach out to them. Those with your hands raised, I'm going to ask you to do something pretty bold today. You believe, I know you do. So the bold thing I want you to do right now is say that name out loud. Say it out loud. Let the church hear the names of the people that you're crying out for. Come on now, Lord. Today we're going to corporately pray for these people and their salvation. I'm going to pray for your strength and your endurance. I'm going to pray that, that God will let you see me, 34 years old, being saved. It's a miracle. I promise you, all of you are a miracle. Period. believe in the saving power of our Lord Jesus Christ today, knowing that he does not need them to be here. They don't need to be sitting in this room. 
he will reach them wherever they're at. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. We pray thanksgiving to you for coming and dwelling among us, for completing the plan that you promised in the beginning. that your very son would be born of the Virgin Mary. And he would go to the cross, falsely accused without saying a word, being beaten and stricken for our sake. They raised him up. And with his last breath, he said, it is finished took him down from that cross and they put him in a, in a burial, in a tomb and just like he prophesied, just like the book says and you said he rose from the grave and all who believe will see that day of resurrection all who believe will be resurrected to glory through the blood of your son Jesus Christ and so Father today we do pray in confidence knowing that you can save. And so I do pray on behalf of the church here. I pray for their loved ones, those people that, they, that came to their minds and their hearts, that they wrote on papers, they raised their hand and spoke their name. Father, we are praying for their salvation right now. And we are believing in you. The wretched people that we once were, are now saved by your grace. Of course he can do it. Of course you can do it for them. So we just pray for their salvation today. Father, we pray for your hand to be with us wherever you lead us, this church. In your timing and for your purposes, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.